Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. The following episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Bento Box and Clover. From websites and marketing tools to point of sale, payments, and ordering, Bento Box and Clover together offer all the unified technology you need for restaurant success. Learn more and book a demo today at getbento.com slash better. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I walk by this tent on the beach and I see this young man and I see this big ceramic vessel and he's sticking his entire arm in there and I'm watching him slap this dough on the side of of this vessel with this fire in the bottom. At the same time, he's got this huge spear with a whole fish on it that is covered in this beautiful yellow marinade and he sticks that inside that was one of the most beautiful cooking sites I've ever seen no one else in my hometown of Tulsa has a tandoor in their backyard I love cooking with fire I love grilling and and a lot of it goes back to that story of meeting this young man on the beach in Goa that is the voice of culinary traveler educator philanthropist and chef Shannon Smith. Shannon is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. Our guest today is Shannon Smith with whom I had a very open, revealing, and honest conversation in New York City last week. More on Shannon in just a moment. I am coming to you today from Northern California. I'm in the Napa Valley. I'm in the town of St. Helena. I've been here since Saturday afternoon. It is now Monday. And I've had a few days that I have to say really brought home what this show means to me, how much it's enriched not just my career, which is probably pretty obvious, But less obviously, even to me, my life. And I wanted to just briefly share some thoughts with you listeners out there because this show wouldn't be around for five years as it has been if it wasn't for all of you. So I just wanted to let you all know what you've helped make possible in my life. Uh, Before I came to California on Saturday, I spent two and a half days in Chicago. Over those two and a half days, I spent some time with Eric Williams, chef and owner of Virtue Restaurant. Eric, in very quick fashion, has become a very close friend of mine. We first met actually interviewing for this 
show back in 2019 and most of it long distance because of the pandemic. We, we started to be in regular touch. We've had a lot of great conversations. We've had some good meals together. Some of those meals have been at his restaurant. Some have been at others. I've caught, of course, also met Damar Brown, who I did see also last week at Virtue a few different times. And Damar obviously has also been on the show. I had a lunch with Beverly Kim and Johnny Clark, whose restaurant Wherewithal is at the center of my next nonfiction book called The Dish. That book is coming out in June. I actually met Beverly during a remote interview for this podcast just last year while I was in the midst of searching for a restaurant to be the focal point of my new book. And now that the book has been delivered, uh, that lunch was just a lunch among friends. Uh, I've become friends, as I have with Eric, with Beverly and Johnny. Uh, I really adore them. Uh, I adore the, the key members of their team, at, both at Wherewithal and at their other restaurant, Parachute. I had dinner at Zach Engel's restaurant, Galit, while I was in Chicago. I've been there before. I've met Zach when I was researching the dish, and that led to a pod interview which deepened our knowledge of each other. And it also led to me meeting his business partner, Andres Clavaro, who it turns out I have a semi-family connection with. He and I both uh, have a longstanding relationship with some step relatives of mine, my step, my late stepmother's family in Miami, Florida. He and I were probably at some of the same parties when he was maybe an infant and I was like 10 or 12 years old. Um, and in the small world department, Eric and I dined at Wherewithal Friday, and we had a terrific evening there, a terrific meal. Thank you to Taylor Ploshahansky and the rest of the team there. Um, and then also while I was in Chicago, I saw Chandra Ram, my good friend, a fellow writer and editor who first looked me up during the Beard Awards years ago because she was a fan of my blog, Tokeland, which in many ways led to my wanting to do this podcast. In a lot of ways, this podcast is just kind of the current 2020-ish uh, uh, appropriate version of what my blog was, which ran a lot of interviews with chefs that the blog has now been subsumed into the Andrew Talks to Chefs website. I don't really write there much anymore, but uh, the back files are still there for anyone who might want to check them out. And then I came north to California. I spent the weekend with my friends Bruce and Shelley Martyr whom I also met through my work. And today, after I post this show, I'm driving south to San Francisco. I'm just going to be there for one night. I'm going to see a couple of friends, including my friend Jody Liano, who until recently owned and operated San Francisco Cooking School. Jody and I first met because she, like Chandra did, reached out to me uh, after kind of becoming a regular reader of my old Tokeland blog. And I went on to, to teach a podcasting module at the school's Food Media Lab in 2019 and actually did a live show at the school there, which led to my meeting Prithi Mystery, who's become a friend of mine. Uh, and I'll actually be visiting this afternoon quite spontaneously a book event for Tanya Holland's new book, California Soul, in Oakland. And Tanya is someone who I first had a detailed conversation with you guessed it, on this podcast. Pretty amazing, the number of relationships that have grown out, grown out of this show. I sometimes say as a joke that I started the show to make new friends, and that is not why I started the show, but in some ways it's why I keep doing it, and it is very much a fact. I cannot count 
how many friends I've made talking across the microphones, uh, recording a podcast. Anyway, all of these relationships grew out of the show or its blog predecessor. I'm very grateful for what the show's given me. I'm grateful to you listeners for giving it all the love you have. And, you know, it might sound corny. It's probably mistimed since Thanksgiving is just a few weeks off. But I felt like today I wanted to just share all of that with you before we got into the show proper. Running a restaurant means keeping up with the times. And now, more than ever, the times keep changing. Luckily, technology has the power to make keeping up a whole lot easier. Bento Box and Clover are now working together to provide restaurants with the technology they need for even more success. From Bento Box's world-class website design and marketing tools to Clover's state-of-the-art solutions for managing point-of-sale transactions and payments, Every detail that goes into a great hospitality experience is supported and streamlined. So whether you own or operate a restaurant or group of restaurants, you're free to focus more time on human interactions, which of course is what restaurants are all about. Learn more and book a demo today at getbento.com better. And speaking of Bento Box and Clover, as regular listeners know, we've been bringing you a limited series of special report interviews on the subject of restaurants and tech brought to you by Bento Box and Clover. Today, I wanted to talk about social media, something we all are constantly trying to master and make work for us. Today, in the last installment of our eight-part series on restaurants and tech, social media advisor and author of the LinkedIn bio substack, Rachel Carton, joins us to share some wisdom about how restaurants and the people who work in them can maximize their social media efforts. Here's our conversation. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making some time to talk with us. Before we jump in and, and start getting some of your suggestions for listeners. Uh, why don't you just, since you've never been on the show with us before, just tell people briefly what it is that you do and specialize in. Perfect. And thanks for having me. So I'm Rachel Carton. I am a social media consultant, and I also write a newsletter called Lincoln Bio. It is a resource for people who work in social, people who maybe do other things, but manage social media. It's a really helpful resource um, that I've been working on for about two years. And before this, I led social at Bon Appetit magazine, and I worked at a food startup called Plated. So I've been in the food social world for almost 10 years now. So I thought it'd be useful to have you come on and, you know, we're doing this series on, on restaurants and tech, and obviously social media is more important than it's ever been. You know, sometimes when people, especially with restaurants that have already been around for several years, ask me, you know, to point them toward a marketing consultant, I often say, you know, you can do that, but I think you might want to put your money and your energy towards social media, you know, especially once kind of the bloom is off the rose and, you know, restaurants that have been around for a few years. I feel like things are in such flux from where I sit. I, I, I guess my first question for you is, where's the action these days? You know, I, I, I still exist on Twitter. I see very few restaurant people there. Where, where do you think people's time is maybe best spent in terms of the various platforms out there? All I hear is about how Instagram is dying. You know, I'm still on Instagram. All my favorite restaurants are still on Instagram. That's where I'm consuming my content the most, I would say. But I do think that 
it is a no-brainer for restaurants to at least ask themselves what their TikTok strategy could look like, um, especially as we see short-form video be just as important to Instagram as it is to TikTok. And I've seen some restaurants really succeeding on that platform, getting crazy views that you just don't get on Instagram. So one that comes to mind is Giada in LA. They have almost 25,000 followers on TikTok. That's where they're spending their time. And you know they have a video that has a million views. 100,000 views, like they're seeing some really amazing numbers there. And I think that, you know, it's important for a restaurant to ask themselves, what could our TikTok look like? And if we were to be on that platform, what would our strategy be? A lot of casual observers have said to me, and I don't know if they've read this or people like you maybe have said it to them, but to what you just said, I I hadn't heard it in as stark terms as Instagram is dying, but I've heard it as Instagram is all in on the reels now and that that's a reaction to the success and the and the dominance right now of TikTok. Um, do you agree that even if maybe you're not going to go all in on TikTok, that maybe a good middle ground is to at least start to put some of your energy into, into generating reels on Instagram? For sure. I think that reels in this moment on Instagram are being prioritized. They are being shared more. Um, the platform is clearly invested in it and any brand, restaurant, anyone should always sort of follow that that sign of, you know, if the platform's investing in it, so should we. I think what is encouraging to me though right now, especially with TikTok and Reels, is that these short form videos don't need, you know, you don't need a camera crew. You don't need some high level storytelling strategy. You can really just turn your camera around on things that you're already doing. You know, I think that restaurants that I've seen do a really good job with Reels, they're just, you know, they're drizzling something on a dish that they've already made. They're tossing pasta that maybe they would have made anyway. They are showing, you know, their donuts being fried. It's things that you're already doing in the kitchen. It's just taking that extra step of like, oh, I should turn my camera on. I should record this and then pair it with a trending song or a song that just you play at the restaurant maybe. And that's that's content right there. Um, and so I think that thinking about short form video as not like some extra big to do, but more like what can I record that I'm already doing? And, and you know, I think restaurants are, are lucky in the sense that food and people love consuming food content online. Things that they're already doing are going to perform well. They just need to sort of take that maybe extra step or extra five minutes to to turn their camera on. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a useful thing for especially chefs to hear because there is this perfectionist bent and, you know, cooking is visual. I think there's a natural inclination to, you know, anything you're going to put out there for public consumption, whether it's eating or viewing, to kind of maybe overthink it or overproduce it. What about types of video? You know, you just mentioned, you know, you can just do the finishing of a dish or I see a lot of people doing you know, these kind of kitchen action shots. I see a lot of stuff being tossed in pans mm-hmm. uh, online. You know, I also see, and actually I, I probably shouldn't say who it was because it was a private conversation, but a friend of mine has started doing these little like desk side chats. You know, he just, he turns the video on and he'll he'll kind of share a story or or an observation, or, you know, I hate to use a phrase like an inspirational thought, but sometimes that's what it is. He'll use the transcription software that puts, you know, words on the screen that track what you're saying. There's always at least one typo, I feel, when you do that, but people <laughs> people seem not to mind. Do you have a sense of what kind of the most impactful thing someone in this field, I mean, is it really just food? Is it that simple? Keep it about the food? No, I think that, you know, another person that comes to mind is, you know, this was, you know, in 
peak pandemic maybe, but Lucas Sin, you know, was going on his Instagram and showing recipes that he was making at home, giving cooking tips. And those were, were huge. And I think that what I really loved about those, like, yes, there was amazing cooking tips. The food looked delicious, but it was his personality. And I was like, oh man, this guy's so cool. Like, I want to get to know him. I want to go to his restaurants. And I think that what we're seeing across the board right now is that leading with personality. And so, yeah, of course, you know, those sorts of cheese poles will always do well. But what can you as the chef or owner of a restaurant bring to the table that no one else can? And that's your personality. That's your vision. And so is there more personality led videos that you could do for reels? Whether, yeah, it's like a desk side chat. Is it a cooking tip? Is it um, the inspiration behind a dish and you're going on and telling people about why a certain dish um, is important to you? Or um, another really amazing Instagram account is it's called mama. Um, I think their handles like mama meal talks and they do these sort of amazing short form reels that um, dig into a restaurant, um, the people behind it. And I think that leading with personality can be a really simple, but effective way to not only create content, but also connect kind of more deeply with your audience than, you know, a pan shot. So kind of a virtual equivalent of what a, a chef or a GM or a dining room manager that kind of connection that you make when someone actually comes to your establishment, you can achieve something like that virtually. A hundred percent. I think that, you know, a lot of those same sort of like hospitality ethos can come through on social media. I also think about, you know, when I tag a restaurant um, on my Instagram story and they respond being like, oh, this looks amazing. Like, thanks for stopping by. Like to me, I'm always like, my heart flutters a little bit. I'm like, oh, cool. They saw that and like appreciated it. And there's so many like sort of little moments like that, that you can bring from the IRL sort of restaurant experience onto uh, the social experience. I mean, it's funny. I, I, you know, I would say for any people who are listening, maybe who aren't uh, in the industry, but, you know, like restaurants and want to support them. Uh, Amanda Cohen from Dirt Candy in New York City was on during COVID. And one of the things she said when I said, you know, what can this was like early on in the pandemic when you know everything was pretty much locked down. And I said, what can people do to support you all? And she actually said, you know, post about the restaurants you like, we see it, we appreciate it, you know, um, it's a morale boost every time somebody takes the time to do that. Totally. I think that I always say that, you know, when people ask how to support restaurants, tag them, say how much you love them, like get the word out there through that. If they respond back to you, respond back to them. There's a human behind that that's, you know, appreciating that you posted and you can build a relationship with the restaurant that way as well. As far as Instagram goes, in terms of somebody deciding, uh, is this a story or is this a traditional post, you know, that lives on the grid. Do you have, do you have any advice on that? Is that, you know, frequency or ratio of one to the other? Um, does it matter at all um, in terms of the, just at this moment in time? How would you advise somebody on that front? I think that something that's really important to social media in general is like consistency. And I think that a lot of people, it's not even just restaurants or brands, feel like something's not good enough to go on feed or they're a little bit more precious around their feed. And my advice, even though I don't take it myself, is just put it on the feed. And if you think it's good enough and your gut's telling you it's good enough, then put it there. You know, I, I met with Instagram when I was working at Bon Appetit and they gave some example where two brands that were really similar, one posted once a week, one posted, let's say like four to five times a week. And the one that was posting four to five times a week on feed grew three times as fast as the other one. You know, the more sort of you put yourself out there, the more chances that your content will be shared, interacted with, and 
ultimately, you know, for better or worse, these platforms reward you for posting more and interacting more. So I wouldn't be too precious about your feed. And, and in terms of stories, I think one of the easiest and best ways that restaurants can keep their stories sort of up to date and constantly sort of at the head of the bar for everyone who's checking them is by just reposting people who are tagging you. Um, when I think about Bells and Los Alamos, like their story is basically just other people posting about them. But I always watch it. I'm always like, oh, that dish is uh, is uh, special for lunch today. Interesting. I, I need to go. And that takes one second to repost those stories, but they kind of are able to constantly have a fresh new content on there. What's the um, etiquette of tagging as we, you know, in the year 2022? I ask because I feel like, um, you know, there's a lot of random tagging that goes on. I mean, maybe it's, you know, like I get tagged often on posts. They have to do with the food and restaurant world. But either my my personal handle or the show handle gets tagged a lot just on from people a lot of times from people I don't even know. Is that considered uh, okay? Is that considered pushing it a little bit, or is it just kind of uh, just kind of the wild west and it doesn't really matter one way or the other? I mean, I do feel like it's the wild west. I would say, like the etiquette wise, you know, I wouldn't tag a restaurant or a person or a chef unless it's, you know, their food or kind of directly related to them. And similarly, if I'm that restaurant, I'm not going to repost on my story unless it's really sort of related to to the restaurant. But it, it, it is the Wild West, I would say. Well, Rachel Carton, thank you very much for joining us. Before we sign off, tell people they want to learn more, more about you, if they want to follow you, if they want to know what you do in a little greater detail, where, where do they go for that? You can follow me on social. I'm at Milk, M-I-L-K, Carton, K-A-R-T-E-N. And my Substack, which has a lot of really helpful social media advice, I would definitely subscribe. It's free. It is milkcarton.substack.com. And for anyone listening who, if you're driving, if you're at the gym, if you're wherever, you didn't get a chance to take that down, uh, there will be links to all of that on the episode page for this episode. Rachel Carton, again, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate the advice. Thank you for having me. And my thanks again to Rachel Carton for joining us. As mentioned in the interview, I have linked to Rachel's website and Substack in the show notes for today's show on andrewtalkstochefs.com. And I urge you to check them out. Also, a reminder to please visit Bento Box and Clover to learn how they can provide you with the technology you need for more success. This is our last segment with them for now. So I also want to thank Bento Box and Clover for their recent support of the pod and encourage you listeners out there to please visit their website to see how they can help you out at getbento.com slash better. So our guest today is Shannon Smith. Shannon is the Tulsa, Oklahoma-based culinary traveler, educator, culinary experience producer. We'll explain what I mean by that. Fundraising dynamo, imminent author, and yes, chef. I say that she is based in Tulsa. That is true, but she spends much of her time traveling the world. In fact, she has been to more than 50 countries. Can you even name 50 countries? Maybe I could. I haven't tried, but that was the first thought that came to mind when I heard that number. Shannon and I met recently in New York City at the home of her publicist, Kimberly Escobar, who graciously hosted us. Thank you, Kimberly. We had a fascinating and very open conversation about cooking, travel, relationships, 
and what the definition of a chef is. I think you're going to love it, so I'm going to get right to it and let it roll. But first, a reminder that, as always, our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Shannon Smith. Here you go. We've never met. I don't think we've ever been in the same room. Um, I, I was getting ready to talk to you, and uh, this will be very strange, but longtime listeners of the show won't be that surprised by it. Um, but I thought it might be a way to turbocharge our conversation. I'm not sure where to go from here. But you like tennis. I do like tennis. I played tennis for many years, and my I was a tennis mom for about 13 years. Oh, my, wow. Yeah, my son was a fabulous tennis player in Oklahoma. He was the state champion all four years of high school and then went on to play college in uh, Colorado. Oh, my Or gosh. tennis in Colorado. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I did That part I didn't know. But I was struck. I listened to the first episode of your podcast. Uh-huh. Uh, which was, I guess, cheekily titled, uh, Who the Hell is Shannon Smith? <laughs> and the first thing you talk about with the friend that was on as your guest uh, to introduce you to listeners in that episode was was tennis. You two had tennis in common. You talked about playing it when you were more when you were younger. Right. Um, and that's a big passion of mine. Um, I guess I'll maybe ask you this. Do you, because I definitely do, but do you make a connection between something like that and what you do now? I would say the connection would be maybe the it's a a solo it's a solo sport it's a solo profession really so Mm -hmm. that would be a parallel uh that's something you know my son really um i think struggled with was you're out there on the court by yourself and it's up to you to you know to win Mm -hmm. and it's up to you to take a loss gracefully and i think it's the same way as a chef a lot of times you are alone in that profession and you're going to screw up and you're going to succeed and you have to know how to handle both sides. I, it's something I'm always interested in. It is, it's always also interesting to me the, the team sport background versus the individual sport background. You right. Know, as, you know, um, but we, the answer you just gave makes total sense given kind of how you've gone about your career, right? And what you do. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you asked that question on your first show, right? Who the hell is Shannon Smith? It seems to me like your, your career seems very diversified, I guess would be a word I would use. Uh, you're nodding as I say that. Yes. Um, you know, again, not having sp- spoken to you before, how do you describe where you are right now in your career in terms of what you're doing now, kind of what your mission is at the moment? Uh, because again, you do a range of activities. Some of them are are altruistic in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are educational in nature. There's a lot of things you do that are supportive of women uh, in the kitchen, um, and uh, it seems like an awful lot. <laughs> um, but I just, you know, by way of introduction, why don't you just tell us kind of what your main f- focus is right now as you see it? Well, right now my focus is to finish a cookbook that I've been working on for about four years, but. Uh, as you said, I have a lot of different interests that all really come back to my passion, if you call it, want to call it that, of food and travel and relationships. And really, relationships are 
at the head of all of that because I love to meet people. I'm good at meeting people. I'm good at making friends. And so I would say that's, uh, that's a huge part of, of all the different components of the things that I do. I, I, I get bored easily. So I do like to skip around. I travel a lot. I've been to 52 countries and I travel probably 40, 50% of the year. And uh, I go, a lot of times I go back to the same places because they're particular places I love, but I'm always looking for uh, people to meet, particularly if they can teach me something because I love to learn specifically teach you something food related or in um, any part of life and work um both but i would say particularly food related I, I like to sit at a bar in restaurants by myself i, I often travel alone but I also uh you know I will meet friend meet up with friends but through these relationships that i that i make i always ask about who do you do you know someone that can teach me how to cook something and I say always, not always, but often. And the number of relationships that come out of that, they say, oh, I know, well, you, should, you should go to my mom's house and she'll teach you how to do this. And I say, well, can you make that happen? And almost 100% of the time, it does happen. And then from that, someone else, you know, they connect me with someone else. And, and I love to hear stories, um, family stories. Where did this recipe come from? And I write down these stories and then, you know, and tell them. I'm a storyteller. And, and that's where I get my stories is from talking. You know, it's funny. I listened to, um, I, I, didn't, I couldn't listen to all of them, but I was listening to, I certainly listened to the first show you did. I listened to the most recent one. I'm struck what you just said about relationships. Because you had people on, uh, both of those, if I bookend uh, this moment in time with your first show of your podcast and the, and the most recent one, I mean, there was one friend on, you were kind of running through like all their marriages. And, right. Like, you, right. You had been there for, you said, I have four contacts for you. Um, do you feel like this is becoming a lost art? This isn't really a culinary question I'm asking, but, you know, generation, we were talking just, you know, uh, uh, before and then just now you were mentioning your son. You know, we, we were at a similar place in life. Um, uh, you know, for me today, I was texting with someone the other day, and we were going back and forth. It was getting very complicated. And I was about to pick up the phone, which I rarely do spontaneously anymore, because people south of 35, maybe, don't mm -hmm. want to, they don't want a phone call. Um, and... Uh, and then this person who I was texting with, who's about my age, called me, right? And mm -hmm. I said, so funny, I was sitting here agonizing. He's like, no, we're the phone generation. But I also feel like that connects to relationships. I feel like, you know, you have to work at relationships. You have to, and they, th they do require, you know, more than a text or a DM or, I mean, I've gotten condolence notes by text, right. you know, like, like a sentence, you know, by text. And if you're out there, you're a friend of mine, I'm not mad about it, it's things change. But I feel like this is becoming something that's kind of uh, in an insidious way kind of slipping away, like the ability to develop really deep, um, textured relationships with people who maybe aren't in your immediate orbit or in, you know, who aren't in the same country as you. That kind of time, that, that is something that intimate time is required for that. Time is required, but also it's a skill. It's a skill to be able to, to carry on a conversation. 
Um, I am discouraged when I meet someone and talk to them and they talk about themselves the entire time, never ask me a question. Uh, to me, it, I have learned how to carry on a conversation and how to develop a friendship. And it, so much of it is asking questions. I'm a very curious person. And to me, I think that is a lost art for uh, people knowing how to to communicate with, you know, with information, with soul. You know, I, I like to ask intimate questions of people. Tell me about your mother. What was your mother like? Uh, I actually learned this skill from my ex-husband. He was very good at communicating, and that's actually how he, he and I uh, started our friendship in the very beginning was him asking me, questions about my family and, and he would tell me ask me my career what did you study in college uh, why did you enjoy that questions like that and it I never had anyone talk to me that way a, a stranger and so from that and he's uh, I, I learned how to how to communicate mm-hmm. yeah I love all that it's funny uh, you know there's a tennis commentator Mary Carrillo I forget where, where, what the context was, but I heard her interviewed once, and and they were saying uh, she was saying that she never asked people what they do, right? Which is that's the way a lot of us kind of start talking to someone. Her first question, you know, she's at a party or a dinner, or whatever. Where are you from? Because it's personal. It is personal. You know, and, I mean, in a good way, and and people can go any which way they want with that question, right? But it'll open up a whole world of things. That what do you do? Eh. You know? But then you can go even beyond that and say, you know, what what did you love about where you, where you're from? Uh, what what was who was your, what was your favorite teacher in high school? And mm-hmm. and you know what did that? How did that person impact your life? Yeah. Uh, well, on that note, let's let's uh, let's shift over to where you're from. Tell tell people a little bit uh, about where you grew up. Uh, what your you know broad strokes are fine. Sure. What your what your uh, childhood was like, um, what your family dynamic was like, and, and what role, uh, if any, food played um, in your early family life? Well, I live in Oklahoma. I've been there my entire life. I grew up on a ranch. I'm the oldest of three daughters, and we had a, a very, you know, Midwestern family life. I mean, my, my father was a hardworking accountant, but then his hobby was raising cattle on this ranch. So he would come home at night and we would, uh, I was raised to be a very hard worker. And my mother was uh, not, she was not a great cook, but she cooked dinner every night. We sat around the dinner table every night. And my father would ask the question, of all of us, what did you learn today? And I resented that question, and I hated it being asked that because, you know, I was at that time a, a teenager and didn't really want to have that discussion. And quite honestly, I didn't want to think about what I'd learned that day. But I always came up with an answer. But now, fast forward, that's I. That's one of the questions I often ask myself. You know, what did I learn today? But I had a home economics teacher in high school named Miss Craig. And she was my hero. I mean, my parents were also, but she was the woman who made me realize how much I loved the home, homemaking. I mean, my mother was a homemaker. She didn't work, you know, when I was growing up. And, you know, this was back in the 80s. 
and it was pretty nerdy. I was a nerd. In fact, when I graduated high school, my senior prophecy, if I don't know if they still do those in the yearbook. It's just like most likely to yes, whatever. Most li- yeah. Yes, was most likely to be Susie Homemaker. And I know, your listeners may not even know what Susie Homemaker was, but that's because I was excelled so much in home economics, meaning I was a seamstress. I could bake cookies. I liked, you know, we had a project planning a wedding, decorate your house. I mean, all these things that I don't even know if they teach anymore, but I loved it. I went on to college, got a degree in home economics, but my feet, my focus was on sewing and I was a very accomplished seamstress and tailor. I had, that was my first career. And I did that for about 12 years, not with very little skills in the, on the cooking side. I knew the basics, but, uh, but that wasn't my interest. And my mother wasn't you know, I grew up on TV dinners and canned corn and beanie weenie. That was what we ate. What's, what's beanie weenie? <laughs> this, is a, a, this has to be a regional or states. Probably so. Yeah. It's a little can of little wieners that okay. have beans in it. And you, okay. you know, that would have been you my can first dress guess. it up yeah. with a with Bisquick or yeah, something, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm from Florida. You say Piggly Wiggly to someone, <laughs> right. and there's a 50% chance they're yeah. like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Spam. I mean, we had spam in every sure. way. Yeah. Eventually, I was, um, I was married. I married. I went to graduate school and studied clothing design and married a guy there and just had a, had a difficult marriage for 10 years, sewing. And when I wanted to leave that marriage and get a divorce, my, my attorney, I had two very young children at the time, my attorney said, Shannon, if you want to get custody of these children, you have to prove to the judge you can support them. And we need to see a paycheck. Because at the time, I was just, you know, taking money for my seamstress work. Was this like you were like freelancing? You were just taking jobs that came to you and you would do them yes. at home? Yes, completely okay. on yeah. my own. Okay. So I was... So this we was lived- like a word of mouth thing. People would... Yes. Either used you or sent friends to you, and mm-hmm. okay, so not so, a lucrative situation. So I, I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I was sewing for the elite. We and we do have elite in Oklahoma, in Tulsa, and um, I my claim to fame is I've made at least five hundred bridesmaids dresses in my career. But anyway, I needed to to a job, and so I got a job with a nonprofit teaching underprivileged kids how to cook. And these are kids that were um, living on food stamps with their with their parents. There was an apar- empty apartment complex that had um, two really races um, living there. Was one half of them were Russians and half were black. And I was told that these kids did not get along. Really, none of these people got along very well. And then it might be a challenge for me to teach these kids after school. So I had an empty apartment that I would go into after school, these kids would come. I knew they were really coming just to get you know, a snack or food, but I was trying to teach them just the, the basics that I knew of how to make something nutritious with the food stamp food they were receiving at home. And what I witnessed was these kids developing friendships and playing together and eating together and that was my first real eye opener that food, you know, does bring people together, makes people get along. You credited food as being the catalyst for that wall coming down. I did. I and and I 
you know, I, they were, I would give them projects to do together, you know, chopping, or I, I carried a little portable grill and would let them, you know, cook over fire. And, you know, these are things that these kids probably had never done before. I, I, I love to teach um, young kids how to hold a knife. I think there's, there are skills that people are afraid to, for children to do, but it gives them confidence. That they're just, I learned a lot of things during that time. I was also teaching at a home for unwed mothers. Again, they were on, you know, government food stamps and um, had a lot of restrictions and, and then nutritional issues they were dealing with, you know, I was trying to teach. I loved it so very much. I loved being a teacher and, and I'm a good teacher. But I knew I needed more skills in the, in the cooking uh, arena. So I went to a culinary school in Tulsa. It was in a, um, like a gourmet kitchen shop. But it was taught by three CIA grads from New York. And I took every class they had for about four years. And, and they hired me to do some of the evening classes, you know, the fun classes in the evening for just their customers. That's a big compliment. It was a big compliment. Can I interrupt you for one second? Yes. Just before we get too far from this moment in time, mm -hmm. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Okay. <clears throat> Put some texture on the backstory, right? All right. So when you start teaching these kids, that was a job. You said, I, I had to get a job. Mm -hmm. Had you done anything prior to that in the, in the realm of what we would call, um, uh, you know, uh, pro bono work or altruistic work or some people might say charity work that word's kind of out of fashion now had you done anything not even necessarily with cooking but had you done community service of any kind was this a part of your makeup prior to that job not really I mean I had done I grew up in a very um, religious household and so there were you know mission projects and things that I had done, you know, as a kid. Mm -hmm. But as an adult, no, I mean, I, I'd been working for 10 years in a, as a seamstress. Yeah. Working, and so keeping I didn't, home, right. keep raising kids. That, that, right. that so kind of took up all your life force. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't given back to yeah. in, in any way. And I hope I'm clear. I'm just asking to get a sense of when sure. this light went off for you, right? Yeah. Because it's such a part of your makeup now. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know. It's funny you mentioned uh, things with the church because, like, I was going to ask it. Like, I was going to ask at some point, just looking at your bio, right? Right. Like, did this grow out of a childhood spent doing some of these things under the religion umbrella, right? Because that mm -hmm. would make total sense. And you mentioned with the kids nutrition. Yes. Did you have any knowledge of that? Was that like training that you got when you took that job? Did you have to kind of hit the books? independently uh, or was it so sort of broad that it was just kind of common knowledge things to adults that maybe these young kids you know hadn't been educated on well in college when you a home economics degree I did have to take nutrition classes okay. and meal uh, my favorite class in college was called meal management that was an actual class uh, for a semester and I learned so much it was how to plan a menu how to plan a meal from start to finish everything comes out cold hot you know when it needs to be I learned a lot from that so I had this background but that was 10 years prior you know to when I began this job with the kids but mm -hmm. I, but it was still it was ingrained in there a little bit and of course I did have to go back and study a little more the nutritious part of it even though it was very you know elementary yeah, for I'm them. sure right yeah I'm sure okay please continue with where okay. you were going well I I just kept learning and I remarried a wonderful man. We are not 
married anymore. He's the one that taught me how to communicate well. And he started taking me around the world. I'd spent a, a semester abroad when I was in college, so I had a little bit of a taste of the world. Where had you been? Uh, I went to school in Vienna. Okay. And on the weekends, you know, we would go all over Europe. But I, it, but that was 15 years that I had not been abroad. And I would, so I'm traveling with my husband, and we did all the, the, the things you do, you know, the museums, the monuments, all of that. But I was so into cooking and food at the time, and I yearned, just had this hunger for learning about the food culture. I wanted to, we would go into a restaurant or go, you know, walk by a market, and I was, my curiosity was just, I, I wanted to meet that farmer that's standing over there. I want to know what is this food? Where is it from? Um, in a restaurant, I'm watching the people, I'm watching the cooks in the back and wondering how they're preparing it. I, I mean, my, I was just really hungry for something else in traveling. So I, on the next trip that we had planned to Italy, I I said, I want to make this a trip where I learn when we're there. And it was this was um, probably 12 to 15 years ago. So it was just really coming. People were just now putting on the Internet cooking classes abroad. It was a new thing back then. And it was difficult, really, to search for exactly what I wanted. And I found a woman in Rome. Her name was Diane Seed. And she's British, but she'd been in Rome for 40 years. And she taught... Uh, cooking lessons in her apartment in Rome. I emailed her and said, "Can I? I'm going to be in Rome for this one day. Can can I come and cook with you for the day?" And she said, "I don't do that. I only, you know, I do these gourmet tours. They're like three. You got to cook with me for three days, and then we'll." And I said, "I don't have three days. Can I please do this?" She allowed me to come. We cooked all day became great friends by the end of the day she said please will you go to Sicily with me next month I mean and again going back to what I talked to you before I just have it it just works that way for me that I end up being invited again and again or introduced and that's really where it began Uh, after that I went to Bologna I had found a family there again who would did not want to teach me in one day uh, they said, we do these market tours. They're three days. I said, please. I went, spent, you know, at midnight that night after we'd been cooking all day. Um, they said, you know, you're our family now. After one day, their daughter ended up coming to the U.S. And we uh, cooked tortellini for three days in Dallas. And um, so that's, and, and I gained confidence by that. Uh, I thought, you know what? People like me. People want to teach me. And they are flattered, I think, that I'm curious and that I want to learn their stories. And I ask questions around the dinner table. I'm, uh, you know, at the end of the day with these people. Um, Questions about their lives. And people, again, back to communication, want to know that, that I care. And I have since been many many places finding these people very much the way I just described with those two on the Mm -hmm. internet but but more so now because I've done it so much and I've met so many people now it's more word of mouth people are just connecting me to to ways so anyway I started teaching cooking back in Tulsa 
people would come to my home. I would teach them the things that I learned abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I taught a lot of, of um, homeschool girls. This was years ago. I taught a group of homeschool girls for two years. They would come once a month. And uh, two of those girls went off to went to culinary school, and they credit it from me just teaching them how to hold a knife, how to cut an onion, how to make guacamole, you know. And that's so rewarding to me that I possibly had something to do with their lives being changed in a in a positive way, particularly with food. Um, I started traveling alone a lot, you know, because, you know, my husband wasn't interested in the food part. And I meet people better when I'm by myself. And I've just developed a lot of relationships that way. I started this blog, started writing the the, the recipes, and it's just grown from there. So a couple of things for you. One is, I just have to, I don't know if I'll keep this question in the final cut or not, but have you ever met Aisha Nurjaya? Here in New York, she's the chef at Shuket no. in Shuka. I, I want to I connect you guys. Okay. Um, you know, she's a chef. She has been for years. When she visits another country, she doesn't go to all the like tro- restaurants for like the trophy posts for Instagram. Right. She goes to people's homes. Right. She gets somebody to make an introduction, mm-hmm. and she goes and spends time with like a grandmother and learns how to do, I mean, her focus is Middle Eastern food, and that's kind of where her whole kind of culinary persona comes from and she's doing some of the most delicious food in New York City right now Um, uh, but the other thing I'm struck by is when you talk about um, you know you kind of said it you know people who are old enough might get the Sally Field reference but you know you said people you know people like me you know as as if it was kind of a revelation I'm just wondering what you and it's a strange question to ask someone about themselves right but I, I, I my suspicion is you had no ulterior motive you know, you wanted mm-hmm. to learn how to cook something. You were genuinely curious. And that was it, right? And right. I think that's, you know, people, especially, you know, you're talking about a lot of people. You're not talking about media figures, you know? Right. People get very nervous about, I've experienced this a ton, you know. This person wants to interview me for their book, you know? Yeah. And all you see, uh, you know, is people getting canceled left and right and, and people having a bad day on Twitter and, you know, people getting mm-hmm. the wrong 15 minutes of fame. That's, people get very suspicious today, right? Like a right. misstep could be broadcast internationally, right. right? it's true. But do you credit it to that, just sort of that, I want to say that purity of intention, right? That you weren't looking for anything else and what could be more flattering than wanting to know how somebody makes tortellini or makes some right. recipe that got handed down to them generationally like what a mm-hmm. what a flattering thing to want somebody to show you i i think so too and and a lot of these the a lot of these people that i've been meeting this this year i was in mexico three times or six times meeting some wonderful people mostly women i've i have probably six women that i've met in mexico Interestingly enough, they're all single, most of many single moms that just happened organically. But when I ask them them questions and I've written some things about these women, they no one has ever asked them, you know, the questions that I ask that no one's ever really cared about them, especially a foreigner, especially an American woman that comes into this goat farm of this woman who, 
and she she can't believe that I would come all the way out to meet her and and watch her milk goats for her cheese you know so yes it's I think it is unique and I think people appreciate that that I I truly care about them. I think people can sense on an animal, like on an animal level, like the way my dog can sense. Like, you know, my dog, uh, we walk around the city and like every 20th dog we pass, my dog will growl at. The wow. other 19, say hello, just ignore them, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I always say to my wife, that dog must be a jerk, you know? Right. We can't pick up on it, but like, why is she growling at that one? You know, she's picking up on something, mm-hmm. right? I think people have that kind of sense sometimes. Um, Traveling alone. I mean, when you start doing that, were you naturally confident and um, maybe a strange term to use about someone from Tulsa, but confident and street smart enough no. to, to get around without concern and, um, you know, harrowing moments? Or was this kind of a crash course in how to travel safely and comfortably on, the, on, on, on a world level? It was a crash course. I did not prepare for it in any way. It just, um, I've always been very independent. I've not always been confident. I had to really learn that. Uh, I feel like I'm mostly confident now. We all have insecurities. But something that happened to me was uh, 10 years ago, I went to India for the first time. I was meeting the woman, Diane Seed, from Rome, and two or three of her friends, and we were going to do... Uh, just uh, cook and learn food from southern India. So we were meeting in Goa. I get on the plane. I am arriving in Goa. Every flight nearly that lands in Goa lands in the middle of the night. So it's going to be, it's 3 a.m. I realize that I have arrived 24 hours before I was supposed to. Because of the time change, sure, I just yeah. messed it's a common, it up. I common messed international it up. traveler mistake. Yeah. But it's 3 a.m. Yeah. and I'm by myself. Yeah. And I'm in the airport with a bunch of Indian people. And I'd never been there before. And I was in panic mode, to be honest. Um, I get my folder out. This is, you know, back when I had the paper, everything was on paper. I look at the uh, guest house where I was supposed to meet these friends. Of course, I was supposed to meet them in the airport. And there was a British couple behind me, and they, I guess we started talking, and he said to me, he said, you need to go to this office, you need to exchange money, you need to get in a taxi, but don't go to that group of people, you have to go to the official taxi stand, and tell them to take you to the nearest hotel. Because this is, I didn't want to, I didn't know if I could even get into this guest house, I didn't know, even know where it was, if an hour away, 10 minutes away, I knew nothing. And I get in this in this taxi. He speaks no English, zero. And I somehow communicated, I need to go to a hotel. Just take me to any hotel. We went to three different high-end hotels. All of them turned me down, said no room, no room here. I think they were lying. I don't know. They didn't, they were suspicious of me. On At the third one... I told the hotel. Did they speak English? Yes. So this wasn't a language thing? No, not at the hotels. The third one that that turned me down, I said, then I'm going to sit in your lobby until daylight, until I can figure out what I'm going to do. Well, he didn't want me to sit in his lobby. And so my taxi driver, he talked to the taxi driver and said, you know, 
I don't know what they were saying. I handed the piece of paper to him of the guest house where I was to be. Anyway, five in the morning, this guy takes me to the guest house, you know, because of the hotel manager speaking to him. Once I get there, I wake up the next morning and go to breakfast. And this is, there were only like five guests at this place. It's a Portuguese uh, home. And I meet this, uh, there's a lot of Portuguese influence in Goa. Mm -hmm. So I'm at this home and I meet this man at the breakfast table. It's just him and me. He's British, he's traveling alone also. And I start asking him, I said, did you, do you know where the beach is? Because I had all day by myself. Do you know where the beach is? He said, yes, I'm going. You want to follow me? I spend the whole day with this guy. And in the end, I mean, we, you know, we have dinner at the, at the guest house that evening. Um, he, I become familiar. We go to the markets. We, he takes me to these, all the tents on the beach. That's where I first saw non being made in a tandoor, which changed my life. And at the end of the day, of course, my friends arrive, you know, in the middle of the night. I'm rested by now. That was a defining moment for me, that entire experience. I learned something about myself that I can do this. I can overcome, you know, an, a problem by just thinking and remaining calm. That's one thing I have learned. Remain calm and just figure it out. And I have done it many, many times. I have to ask. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that whole story. I want to know about why non was so important. But I have to ask. You sort of anticipated my follow-up question, but there's a piece that I'm dying to know about. You talk about that moment because you come. You strike me even now after all your travels, mm -hmm. right, and adventures. You strike me as a very polite person, right? Yes. Um, you uh, have that moment in the hotel where you say. I'm going to sit here until, right? That's a very mm -hmm. assertive thing. You're in a, you're in a foreign country. Right. Um, I don't know about you. When I'm overseas to this day from the first time I went right after college to today, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware of not wanting to perpetuate like the ugly American mm -hmm. thing. Um, uh, did, did, that, did you surprise yourself in that moment being that? A, there's a look on your face. I'm dying to hear what you're going to say. <laughs> but was that a surprise to you that not just staying calm, not just solve it, mm -hmm. but that was an interaction in which you clearly felt like the only way you were going to get what you needed mm -hmm. was to be a little bit assertive and kind of push a little bit. Um, I'm just wondering if that you surprised yourself with that piece of that story. I did surprise myself. And I, I can remember it very well, like it was yesterday. I remember the feeling. I I like you, do not ever want to come across as the rude American, and I work very hard at that. I try to the opposite, but there are times when I feel like I've been taken advantage of or that I'm being rude to, and I will be assertive, not in a rude way, but assertive. So, yes, that was one of my first lessons in that. Just tell me about the nod. Why? You said it changed your life. It, it honestly did. I... I walk by this tent on the beach and I see this young man, young teenager, and he's inside with this, I mean, I was ignorant. I didn't know, I had heard of non, you can buy it in the supermarket, but I didn't know how it was made. And I see this big ceramic vessel and he's sticking his entire arm in there. And I, so I asked him, may I look at what you're doing? And cause it was very, it was hardly anyone on the beach that day. 
And I'm watching him slap this dough on the side of, of this vessel with this fire in the bottom. At the same time, he's got this huge spear with a whole fish on it that is covered in this beautiful yellow marinade. And he sticks that inside, you know, next to the naan. And that was one of the most beautiful cooking sites I've ever seen. And to this day, and I've seen a lot around the world, but that was so impressive to watch. How, how, first of all, how does the dough sticking to the side of this, to the wall, how is it bubbling up so beautifully? He got it out. How is he not burning himself? All these questions. And uh, I asked him if I could you know, do it. And he was hesitant. And, and later on, on other trips to India, I, I did learn. But after that trip, I went home and I googled Tandoor oven and had I bought I purchased one within weeks, it came from Pennsylvania. I've had it now for 10 years. Um, it's charcoal, you know, you can get them, you can get a gas fueled or charcoal, I wanted to be very authentic. I use it quite often I do a lot of Indian dinners in my home and that's you know part of my I, I don't want to say show but I, I make all the naan in the tandoor and it's it's something I mean no one else in my hometown of Tulsa has a tandoor in their backyard I actually have seven grills in my backyard that's a I love cooking with fire I love grilling and um and that's one of my that's my my favorite one my favorite piece and a lot of it goes back to that story of meeting this young man on the beach in Goa I love that I love that uh seven grills seven grills. are they all different type like do you have like an Argentinian yeah uh, meat? Do, you don't do you have one of I those? don't have the Argentinian okay um but I have I have one that is uh fueled by wood mm-hmm. and it has a galvanized steel hot plate uh, on the on the edge of it I have actually I have two of those two different sizes I have a charcoal grill I do a lot of smoking and things in that I have a gas grill the tandoor I have an evo flat top uh, grill I have what it's called a hasty bake they're actually made in Tulsa which is you know you can raise and lower the the mm-hmm. the, the bed the bed yeah and uh, I have an infrared. I have. Wow. I, I know it's. It sounds crazy, but and I'm no. I don't think it I'm not crazy a master. At all. I think it sounds enviable. Well, yeah. it's. I don't it's think something. any of my listeners are going to think it's where they're going to be like. That sounds great. I'm going to start collecting grills. And, and I'm not a grill master in any way. People, you know, ask me, "Oh, how's your barbecue?" I well, if define barbecue, you know, in the American barbecue, I don't do that. I don't smoke things for hours and hours. I'm not a patient person. I don't have the patience to do that. But I do grill and work with fire a lot. You like my, live fire cooking. I love, yeah. and, you know, my my chef crush is Francis Mullman. Okay. Oh my gosh. I, Have you two ever met? No, I missed him by one day. I was in Argentina at his uh, restaurant, The Vines, and he had just left the night before. But someday, I hope to I meet. I have a feeling that'll happen for you. I hope. I have a feeling that'll happen for you. How do you decide where to go? I mean, you've been to, what did you say, 52? 52 countries. Yeah, how do you decide what's next or where you go back to? Yeah. Or? You know, and the number has been 52 for about five years because I keep going well, that's, back to that's Italy. <laughs> I keep going back to Italy. I've been to Italy probably 30 times. I it's, It is my favorite. Um, Rome is my favorite city in the world. I just There's just something about it. Uh, but other countries, it's just multiple, multiple times. 
Um, how do I decide? Well, right now, because of the book, I keep going back to do research. I just got back from uh, San Sebastian, Spain. I've been twice this year, you know, just getting more information, getting better photos, things like that. So right now, that's my focus is going back to places. My bucket list is very short. I was just going to say, is there still a bucket list it, with 52 countries short, on your, yeah. on your uh, dance card? Yeah. yeah what's, I want to go to South, I want to go to South Africa. Okay. Uh, I want to go to Uruguay. Uh, there are places in South America. I would like, love to, um, to visit. I haven't been to Brazil. Hmm. Um, so there, there are places, but mostly there are places I just want to go back to because I loved it so much. Are there, have you kept a few things on your bucket list so that you haven't you know, like I used to have a thing. I was an English major in college. Mm -hmm. I always kept one book by my favorite authors mm -hmm. that I hadn't read, you know, because I wanted to be able to yeah. someday go like on vacation. Okay, I'm going to now I'm going to read. Uh, I've never read The Beautiful and the Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. I've read everything else. I've read his notebooks. Some vacation, I'm going to read that book, yeah. you know. Um, is, is that part of your strategy? Do you want to keep a few things kind of there and, and there, not feel like you've done it everything you ever gone everywhere you ever wanted to go i'll be honest there is one and that is a i want to do an african safari i've done one in um in rwanda which is my heart is in rwanda but i want to do a very nice african safari but i am saving it to do with a special person someone a special man in my life which I don't have right now so that is the one thing I'm saving but that's powerful, it may never right? happen it may never happen and that's okay that's okay but yeah. that's a powerful yes. thing to have in your orbit right yes. that possibility yeah yeah that's I love that I love that um okay uh well you've mentioned it twice now what's the and then I'll say just you know so your publisher if they hear this they're mm -hmm. not upset I'll have you back when the book comes out thank you so you haven't cashed in your appearance on the show <laughs> Keep the marketing. Well, I'm self-publishing, so I'm the boss. Oh, okay. Of this. You're self-publishing. <laughs> Great. Then I well, you can still come back. Thank um, you, uh, Kimberly, who's over here, knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. Publishers are like, why'd you go on the show nine months before mm -hmm. the book? Uh, what's the book? The book is called The Hidden Table, and it is a, a, it's a memoir of my travels. Every chapter is titled from different places where I have been. I can't say countries because they're not all countries. One is Santa Fe, New Mexico. And one one was going to be called South America, but I can't call it that because I've only been to three countries, uh, which is Peru, Chile, and Argentina. So that's the name of that chapter. But others are, are countries. and But each one has the story of what I learned there, the people... The hidden table refers to all those hidden places, people, stories, recipes, things that I learned that most people wouldn't know anything about. And then the objective is that in the end, once people read this book, they want to come to my own hidden table in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I, that's what I'm doing now, and I, I guess I didn't get to that point, but the last several years, I put on these experiential dinners in my home, and they are beautiful. I have a whole team that I work that works for me and makes them dinners that are unlike anything in in this part of the in that part of the country for sure. I know um, the uh, Lost Kitchen up in Maine. 
it's very similar to that, only I'm not doing farm to table. Table I'm doing based on uh, world cuisine. But that's my goal is I want people from all over the U.S. to come to my city of Tulsa, which is a remarkable place, not only to live but to visit. And I want to feed them and tell this, these stories based on this food. Many of the ingredients I use, I source from those places. I bring suitcases of spices and food back from my travels, and, and I use them in these dinners. So that's the book. That's great. And it's, do you have a target date? I do have a target date. <laughs> it keeps broadly, changing. Give me a seat. broadly speaking, are we looking at fall I'm, 23? Yes, we fall okay. 23 to have an okay, actual so book in now, hand. That yes. people can order. Yes. Okay. So we'll keep people updated on that Thank when the you. time comes. Um, talk to my snobby coastal listeners, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. You want people to come there? What? 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 what what's in? What? Why would one visit Tulsa, Oklahoma? You know, o- Oklahoma, I think, sometimes gets a bad rap. But we, you know, I've there are people things think we all ride horses and we live in teepees. It is a beautiful state. It's very diverse. There are two major cities, Oklahoma City and Tulsa. I grew up near Oklahoma City. I've been in Tulsa 35 years. I prefer Tulsa. But it is, it's not only beautiful, but we have amazing art culture. The food culture is getting better and better all the time. We had uh, six James Beard semifinalists this this past Mm -hmm. year. And it's... The people are kind. It's an economical place to live. I could go on and on about Tulsa. I'm Great. I'm a self-appointed ambassador for my city. I love it. I love it. Good. Well, that's why I asked the question. Um, the dinners you do, mm-hmm. um, how do you work it? Is some are some of the dinners like dinners that you put on, and that's like what you do. You also, I know, do dinners for causes, right? You do dinners to raise Many. money, yes. right? That's like a big focus of your. What's the word we use? Not for profit. Philanthropy. Philanthropy. Yeah, we'll Thank use you. that Philanthropy. word. Yeah. That's the word. Um, to, are they okay. basically the same experiences with the uh, proceeds going to different places, or yes. how do you how do you um, uh, differentiate those, if at all? Many of the ones I do in my own home are are ticketed dinners. And again, they're based on a country, so I might have what's called a night in India. That's what I'm doing this week. A night in India, a night in Greece, a night in Israel. Uh, last week I had uh, my friend Gil Havav from Tel Aviv come. We did a, the first Yemenite dinner in Oklahoma. Um, so I do those ticketed type dinners. About how many people, ballpark? 30. Okay. And then, and those are outdoors. I do, the. I have this beautiful backyard with its garden and a pool and I set up the tables back there when the weather is extremely cold or hot which is often and we do have four seasons I do them in my dining room and where I can do about 20 30 or 20 25 anyway I also am very passionate about several different causes one in particular is a school in Rwanda I mentioned that a minute ago and they put on a charity event in Denver every year and I offer a what I call uh, uh, dinner around the world I also do those in Tulsa where each course six courses is from a different country from where I've cooked so that those dinners go for a lot of money people and then I and so I actually cook them in Denver been doing that for about four years 
and have raised uh, about $250,000 for that school. And then there are other, um, the food bank, we have a wonderful food bank in Tulsa, so I also donate to that. There's another organization called Visivance where they do eye screening for the homeless, and people buy my dinners in their auctions. So I'm very passionate about that. Also microfinance programs, I'm very involved in, actually not as much, I'm now that the pandemic is near, hopefully nearing the end, I will start going and I teach women who are in microfinance programs in um, third world countries how to cook the food that they grow or that they can get in their markets. That's another whole story. But my point is I do care very much about um, poverty and uh, impoverished people, particularly those that, you know, are are there's so many impoverished people who are brilliantly smart, very motivated, they want to work, they want a skill, but they have no one to teach them. The one thing I can teach is how to cook. And you don't have to be a trained chef to see, teach someone how to cook. And I can go in and without electricity or running water teach these people and again they don't understand why an American woman would care so much about them and that's impactful on me as much as it is to them still rewarding after all these yes. years of doing it yeah. each time I love it yeah um, you again sort of anticipated a question I was going to ask and this is not a this is not headed to a negative place right but I haven't heard you mention what well, you were unquestionably a chef right you, you if you're doing dinners for 30 people mm -hmm. And they're paying and you have a team that works for you that's a chef right whether it's in your home or a restaurant have you ever worked in an actual restaurant no yeah I have not worked in an actual restaurant yeah so this well go ahead and answer and then I'll tell you well, why I asked well because it's a good question a lot of people assume that to be a chef you have to have worked or work in a restaurant which I haven't I have I do collaborate with a lot of chefs mostly local and work in their restaurant with them so I have seen it I I don't desire that lifestyle in any way. Um, so the answer is no, I have not ever worked in a restaurant. Yeah, the reason I ask the question is, I feel like, I say it all the time on the show, things change, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's all kinds of ways of being a chef today. There's food trucks, there's pop-ups, there's really small restaurants. There's restaurants that are open for one service a night. There are restaurants that are open three days a week, right? They're single subject restaurants where they only serve one thing and they mm -hmm. just do it to a fried chicken restaurant or something like that. I think most people would assume if anyone's doing anything that we, you know, where we would refer to them as a chef, they probably worked in a restaurant. Maybe they went to culinary school and went the private chef mm -hmm. route, right? But, right? but for someone doing what you're doing who travels the way you travel, I don't, I think it would be very, even after listening, I don't know how many people, you know, if they played back the conversation so far in their head, realized, oh, she's never worked in an actual restaurant. But I find that very, um, well, I find it impressive, but I also find it really interesting, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it speaks to how much this industry has changed over the years and, and what a flexible industry it is at this moment in time. Um, I mean, you, you, I'm sure you, we've messaged a little bit on Instagram mm -hmm. since we started trying to yeah. make this interview happen. You've interacted with a number of very accomplished chefs mm -hmm. who are restaurant chefs, right? Yes. I'm assuming you feel like you can speak to them on, on an equal footing about the craft about, I mean, maybe you can't talk about 
you know, uh, your suppliers that you both have had right. issues with or things like that, right? But I expect yeah. you can speak to anyone who does cooking on, on that kind of a scale, you know, on a, on a, uh, as complete peers. I, I feel like, I don't know about equally, but certainly I am comfortable with that. I, there are terms that I don't know because I didn't, I, I wasn't trained that way. I have been questioned by, you know, people who say, do you, are you really a chef? You know, you, you were not classically trained. And my answer is I wasn't classically, classically trained, but I'm trained all over the world by real people. Not, not that those aren't real people, but by people, <clears throat> skills that, and things that no one else in culinary school is learning. So, and I'm not saying that's better. It's just different. So I am trained, just in a different way. I'm going to go out on a limb and say people who have asked you that question are probably on the older side. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I feel like that's a generational attitude. Um, and I'm saying this to someone who's 55, right? But I think that's a very closed-minded way to look at things. Um, uh, you know, there used to be a restaurant in Brooklyn called Take Root. It unfortunately uh, only lasted about, the owners burnt out. It was two women. They're married. Uh, one was a chef and one did everything. They did everything. They washed the dishes. They put the garbage out. They served. They, everything. It was a tasty menu restaurant. And they were open like a couple, maybe I want to say three or four nights a week. I think they did one service on weeknights and Friday and Saturday they did two. And I was describing this once to a, to a chef who had come up very classic American, but in French kitchens and stuff. And this person said to me, that's not a restaurant, that's a dinner party. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, if you're only doing, I go, just cause you had to suffer. That's right. <laughs> like I went as a diner and I had one of the best meals I had that year. It was completely immersive. Uh, uh, it was, um, Elise Korneck was the chef, uh, and her wife, Anna, who has a name I don't, I'm going to mispronounce if I try to say it. Anna, I'm sorry. But she used to run a yoga studio. So she would make a mixtape or a playlist, mm -hmm. I guess, right, for each menu. And it was synced to the menu. And it was a lot of bing, boom, boom, wow. you know, like meditative, you <laughs> mm -hmm. know. But when you walked in and you sat down, you were just like deeply focused on the table, the food, the vibe. And they only have 12 seats. They only had 12 seats, mm -hmm. right? You're nodding as I re you relate to what I'm describing, uh, very much but so. that attitude is what I'm trying to describe of the person who said that's right. not a restaurant. I'm like, what do you care what goes on in the back? If you're having an, if I'm the only guest and I'm having an amazing right. night, that to me is amazing. I don't yeah. care. You're not going to sit there and question whether it's a chef or, or restaurant they, or, or how hard yeah. they work right. or, you know, and by the way, the, the reason the restaurant closed was it was only two of them and they burnt out. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not talking out of school. The sure. story was told on this sure. show, um, but they burnt out. Yeah. You know, one of them had half a breakdown and they closed it and they moved upstate. They yeah. couldn't maintain that. I mean, there's actually two yeah. people doing that is hard work. I had a, I, last week I had a winemaker, Paula Cornell out of Napa came to my home to do a wine dinner. She asked if I would pair a, a menu with her wines. She showed, it was on a Sunday night. She arrived, had flown in, arrived at my home at 2 PM dinners at six. And I had told her, you know, I can't visit with you. I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm in focus mode. And so she sat and just, you know, sipped her coffee and was on the computer from a distance and watched the process that I go through. I wasn't even thinking that she was watching. But later, 
that night after the dinner, she was, we were sitting around because several restaurant owners from Oklahoma City had come in for this event, and they all stayed at my house, so we had this big slumber party. And she said, I have to tell you what I observed today. She said, I got here at 2. Shannon's chopping onions. Her assistant is on the grill outside. An hour later, this woman comes in with flower arrangements, and she's setting the tables making these gorgeous tables. An hour later, two more women come in. They're filling water glasses. They're setting out the, you know, whatever. And she goes on. And then an hour later, another woman comes in is washing dishes. She said, I've never seen such proficiency in, in, a, in a home like this before. She said it was so interesting to watch. And it, it was really compelling to me because I hadn't, I don't, it's natural that's the way I run my business. You're describing a restaurant. Yes. Yeah. But that's just I'm very organized yes. and I'm and I'm controlling in a nice way, but it was refreshing to hear someone describe it and know that it, that I did it right and it was a wonderful event. Mhm. Yeah, I mean this is again, I think that question that like it makes me a little angry. You know, when you say mm-hmm. that question you got asked mm-hmm. because who cares? Who cares? Yeah. You know, I think that's such a closed-minded view of the world. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I there's all these people come to mind. I have a friend who's a chef in uh, in the Los Angeles area. Has been successful for decades. Had a little formal training. Mispronounces all the you know French terms, yeah. or I don't know if mispronounces or just mm-hmm. uh, pronounces them in a deliberately American way. Mm-hmm. Right? Doesn't bother. Like we say Paris, I have, I grew up with someone who, you know, you know, he, he never would pronounce things with a French accent because he said, I'm saying them in English. Like we don't say Paris, we say Paris, right. right? So I don't know what his reasons are, but he does it in a way that anybody who'd gone to like, you know, a major culinary school or come up in a French kitchen would sneer at, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. The food's great. Right. Right. I mean, that's it. You know, there's people who come to writing, going to writing workshops and write in the Iowa Writers mm-hmm. Program or whatever. And there's people who were just born great writers, you know, yeah. um, singers. There's classically trained and there's people who yeah. just got up at a microphone one day and they, yeah, yeah, they needed a little finesse, but they have a, just were born to it, right? right? I think this notion that you have to have suffered or done it the way other people, mm-hmm. if the, I think the results speak for themselves. Well, thank you. I, I, I agree. And I'm sorry, I don't mean did I just no, get a little crazy. <laughs> no, not at all, because it's something it's it's you know, it's an insecurity that I that I have. It really still. is. yes. Still. I mean I'm more confident because of people like you that tell me it's okay and that but but yes, I I do have the insecurity of I wasn't you know, I didn't work in a restaurant. I mean if you saw the back of, you know, my back hall in my in my house and saw all the dishes and I have an entire room called the platter room Mm -hmm. because I collect you know platters around the world but um so yeah I it if if you've had my food and that's the thing when people come and eat my food I make amazing food I'm not just it's just a a fact I'm very good cook and once people leave they say I had no idea what kind of experience this was going to be. And it's not just about delicious food. It's the service. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm very, you know, I want my tables to be beautiful. All the things that a restaurant tries to do. 
Yeah. I wasn't being cute a minute ago. You, when you describe the the flow, the mm-hmm. workflow of yeah. your kitchen on an event day, that's a restaurant. Right. You described a restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's the prep, and then there's the you know, mm-hmm. and then you know, I'm sure you do like a like some kind of a wipe down or a reset right, right before service, mm-hmm. and then, that's a restaurant. Right. I mean, it happens to be mm-hmm. in your home, but you know, if you called it a pop up, you know, nobody would not right. you know, they would say that's a re- you know, it's yeah. a pop up restaurant, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It's just. Um, Anyway, I think I think uh, I just can't stand questions like that. Okay. And I really I tell people like the minute Rich Melman from Chicago, the great restaurateur behind Let Us Entertain You, he and his two sons were on the show earlier this year. He's in his early eighties, right? And they're getting ready to do like a Japanese concept and a, right. And I said this. I mean, he's like early eighties, and I said I think the minute you stop being because it really struck me that he was still so into all these things. And I said, the minute, I feel like the minute you start being resistant to new, mm-hmm. you're on your way to being old, Yeah, you know, and out of step. That's really my feeling. That's a very good point. It's a very good point. Well, I'm sure you've seen it. We talked recently, I spent, I was telling you before we started recording, I spent a day on the road yesterday with Daniel Balud. Mm-hmm. Daniel, Daniel's in his 60s. Yeah. He wants, you get together with him. He, where have you eaten? What was it like? Did, you know, all this. I told him about the, uh, mm-hmm. I talked about it on the show, the, the little, the, they call it the super, the little market mm-hmm. in Yangban society in LA, which mm-hmm. is like my favorite feature of any restaurant I've been to in I don't know how long. He was so into it, follow-up questions. And he wasn't like, oh no, you have to have a sommelier, you know? Yeah. Uh, they have like kind of a go up and pick yeah. your drinks out of the cooler and mix and match. And he thought it was super cool, right? Yeah. A lot of people who came up the way he did would have been like, oh, yeah. you know. He's a special individual though. He's so humble and... Uh, curious curious genuinely yeah. curious you know and i feel like that is something i think if you want to do this and do this for whatever however this is what i think for listeners is to me the lesson of your story is it do, and i go this to me brings it full circle right i asked you this thing at the beginning like you know who how do we define what you do and i think the answer is you don't have to right you do things that excite you that re- you find personally rewarding mm-hmm. that bring other people pleasure or relief mm-hmm. you know or education and that's right i mean this is what you right. do there's no label for that and i'm, I'm going to go back to me in the beginning talking about relationships and forming relationships one of the other hugely rewarding things for me at these dinners are the relationships that occur around the table because i these are big tables people are seated often with people they don't know and I can't tell you, I've had people get hired at those tables. I've had, um, you know, yoga instructors that now have three new clients, um, restaurant owners who now have new customers that didn't know about the restaurant, all kinds of relationships come out of that. And if you don't mind, I'm going to tell you one other thing that I do that is impactful in my community, which is... I've been doing this for six years, and this is a party that I throw every May for my industry friends in Tulsa. When I say industry, these are farmers, food writers, uh, food photographers, restaurant owners, chefs, sommeliers. These are my friends, my peers, the people that support me and that encourage me. The way it got started was six years ago, maybe seven, I was trying to figure out, I was 
pretty deep into this career, if you want to call it that, but I hadn't really gotten the recognition from the Tulsa real, what I call real chefs the, at that time. That's what I, um, I wanted them to know what I was doing. But it was, who the hell Shannon Smith? Back to that. So I thought the only way I'm going to show them that I'm for real and that I really can cook is to feed them. That's the only way I'm going to do this. So I, but I didn't even know the names of who to invite. So mm-hmm. I had someone in the industry come over. I said, I, you, you list the people that should be coming to my house for this party. He did. We sent out paper invitations, beautiful invitations. It was going to be an Indian dinner. I probably, of course, chefs are terrible at doing our, at RSVP, which I think is ironic, especially restaurant owners that don't RSVP. But hopefully, um, I've learned taught them a lesson because now they, they know talents, what the best. they have talents other than <laughs> exactly. communication. It's, threw, it's, a, it's a thing. It's it's their, yeah. Right. It's a it's it's almost it's almost metabolic. But yeah. Well, about I would say twenty five percent of the invitees came. I filled the seat, the rest of the seats with my friends. I put on this wonderful Indian party. Social media blows up with it. And suddenly I'm getting all these friend requests now. The next year, more more people come. Now, six years later, it is the part, I'm going to tell you, it's the party of the year in Tulsa, you know, in this, in the industry, if you want to call it that. And um, I've had to, I've cut some people. And I every year add people. It's up to about seventy now in my backyard. I we light fires. A lot of them are chefs. They want to be cooking. So I'll uh, I have a DJ. Sometimes I have live music. It is a party, and it's something. And it's free to them. Mm. You know, I they don't have to pay. They come, and it's my one time of the year to feed the people I respect in Tulsa. I love it. I love it. I'm going to leave it right there. Okay. Um, great to meet you. Uh, look forward to the book. Um, look forward to following your further adventures. Thank you. And uh, thanks for coming on the pod. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's our show for today. Thanks again to Shannon Smith for joining us. And thank you to Rachel Carton. Links to her website and Substack are featured in the show notes for today's episode at andrewtalkstochefs.com. Our thanks as always to Sam Pellegrino for their support. And our thanks to Bento Box and Clover for their support from websites and marketing tools to point of sale, payments, and ordering. Bento Box and Clover together offer all the unified technology you need for restaurant success. Learn more and book a demo today at getbento.com slash better. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we ask you do that by telling a friend about the pod, posting about the show on social media, and or rating or especially reviewing us at Apple Podcasts, which does help new listeners find the show. Our thanks to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram, at Chef Podcast is the handle there. And thank you for listening. We will be back soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.